Hey there, chatters. I'm Nat. And I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale, Natalie Azure, true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. And here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of mm. mysterious, weird, unknown, uh-huh, mm-hmm. violent scenarios today. So your listener discretion is advised. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. So you've been warned. Before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done and where the hell are you? I'm in a cockpit. <laughs> We're flying. <laughs> going to coincide with our story. So this is the cockpit of a Boeing 777, and I'll get into a little bit of that. I love that you put the crime chat on the dashboard, like on the... (laughs) Crime chat in the sky. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So I finished The Fall of House of Usher, and I loved it so much. I like, oh my, wanted to watch it all over again. It was so good. Yes. So good. And I don't know if Chris didn't get it. He's like, What's up with the eyes? He's like, did he carve her eyes out? And I was like, those are the sapphire eyes. Right. He's like, what sapphire eyes? And I was like, did you totally miss that part? Yeah. Like when he ordered the sapphire eyes for his sister. Oh, spoiler alert. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't watched it. <laughs> what was but that was connection? With the, that connection, though, with the sapphire eyes is because he kind of envisioned her as like this queen. Like, in his head, that's who she was. So he, in a way, maybe it was his way of preserving her? I think so. So the eyes were kind of in a way, so their eyes would never be shut forever, To a way to for them to see in the afterlife, be able, so their body, their body may go, but they'll be able to, like, live. It's like it has to do with an afterlife. Yeah. So he ordered this artifact of sapphire mm-hmm. eyes that were used in mum- mummifications. Yeah. That were, he bought for his sister, and... Ended up using him. Yeah. It's fantastic, though. It is. So, Augie, the character that Augie plays in the original poem or short story, that's, it's, so the original poem short story is first person. Mm-hmm. So that would been would have been from, like, Augie's perspective, mm-hmm. when, like, the whole backstory of their friendship and kind of how it all happened and everything that, all the way through the fall of the house and the family. Right. So and it was really cool. And Augie is the police officer, right? He is an attorney, so. Oh, yes. When, Forgot about it. Roderick was like, I need to confess. Yeah, so he's Augie, technically. Yeah. Because I'm like, did they have an Augie? They didn't have a character named Augie. August. His name was August something, and Roderick called him Augie. Okay, all right. Yeah, it was the lawyer. So what else have you done? Anything else that's exciting? I know. Just diving into this story that is, Chatter's going to be two parts. Yeah. There is absolutely no way we could fit it into one. And if you don't know, we're going to be going over the Malaysian Airlines MH370 disappearance. So Ugh. that is going to be two. It, I mean, honestly, it could be multiple parts, but we're going to break it down into two. So Yes. So I've been doing a lot of investing in trying to get my facts right. You're going to try to get it into two, but it can go into three if you need to go into three. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you never know. Never know. Never know. I haven't done anything worthwhile via Netflix at all, actually. I've just been working a lot. Yeah, that's about it. So, like, yeah, I suck this week. Totally suck. <laughs> Hate no. weeks like this. <laughs> we So, the other thing that we've kind of been watching. So, my husband, I guess, started watching The Boondocks. Okay. The animated series. I think it's on Netflix. Is that Snoop Dogg? I think yeah. so. Yeah. These two kids. What is it? Huey and Riley uh-huh. are the two kids and they live with their grandfather. Okay. So I think he started watching it at work, then he started watching it at home. It's kind of silly. Like it's, I, but I think it's got like some good human nature, like yes. lessons in it. Oh yeah. Treating people right. But anyway, yeah. the first one I watched had, what, who was, who does Pimp My Ride? Is it? Oh, I don't know. Uh, exhibit. Okay. Exhibit on MTV. He has a TV show that's called Pimp My Ride. And that was right. the first episode that I watched. Where Riley, the younger brother, called Exhibit and said, my poor grandfather, Bubble, gave mm-hmm. him some fake sob story to get Exhibit to come out to the house to pimp his ride. Simultaneously, who, tie something that used to do home makeover where they come and completely right. like, demolish and rebuild the houses. 
he did that like the little kid did that at the same time so you've got exhibit showing up and then you've got ty with his whole crew showing up and he told two different stories like he told the grandfather had some sort of disability i can't remember what it was for the pimp my ride but he told ty and the producers of that tv show that his grandfather was blind <laughs> and he wasn't <laughs> he's like granddad just go along with it oh my god <laughs> anyway, it's kind it's funny like i didn't i don't know i, I would have never started watching it mostly I guess because animated, but not that I'm against animation. I just right. prefer the deeper, darker, realistic stories. Yeah. And also SAG is making a deal. Thank God. Yes. I think what was holding them up was AI, mm. which I understand. Sure. I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So, cat. So before you get into your story, I, I'm going to do an intro on airplanes that, you know, well, airplanes. Sometimes we lose them. <laughs> Sometimes, Sometimes disappear. they disappear. Sometimes, like, where, where'd they go? I mean, it's a pretty big thing to lose. I mean, it's not like... Before you do that, have you ever watched the show Manifest? No. It's on Netflix. Mm. And next week, while I'm on vacation, your mission mm. is to watch Manifest. Mm. And tell me oh. if you think it's related to this story. Chatters, let us know what you think. Okay, I will do that. Mission accepted. Yes. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and I just realized, just so you know, so I went to get my nails done last week. <laughs> I asked for a pumpkin color. Yeah. And I got traffic cone. So <laughs> that's hot now. Pumpkin. Wait. Traffic cone. Yeah, I got traffic cone. So I'm like, whoa, that was, that's bright. All right. Goes along with our warning. It's a... <laughs> okay, so airplanes, like I said, can be lost or experience accidents or disappearances in various locations around the world. Mm -hmm. Some notable areas have gained notoriety due to mysterious disappearances or challenging flying conditions. Here are some of those known areas. Mm -hmm. The Bermuda Triangle. Also known as Devil's Triangle, it is loosely defined. It's a loosely defined region in the western part of the Atlantic, North Atlantic Ocean. It has gained a reputation for the high number of aircraft and ships that have disappeared yeah. under its mysterious, murky waters and circumstances. While traveling through the area, I mean, I don't know. I'm assuming that like most air, we don't avoid the Bermuda Triangle, do no. we? Mm -mm. I don't think we do. We fly over it. Yeah, yeah. I, re I remember when like I was a kid, my mom went to Bermuda on vacation, and I was so scared that she was going to not come back, that she was going to disappear. Because you knew that the plane was going over the Bermuda Triangle. No. Yep. <laughs> but I don't think, like, I, but I don't think our, what am I, like, the uh, the companies, what's the what's the word I'm thinking of? FAA, the Federal the FAA. Yeah, yeah. Federal Aviation I don't, Administration. I don't think they avoid the Bermuda Triangle. I think they no, fly. I, I think, think so. they're just like, let it ride. Let it, let it ride. Let's yeah. just go. <laughs> yeah. So scientists and aviation experts consider that these claims are unfounded and the Bermuda Triangle is not officially recognized as a hazard to air travel. Mm, that's what they said. Although mm. there's no explanation for the things that have disappeared. No. And a, yeah. a lot of big things disappeared. A lot of big ones. Yeah. All right. Next one, remote mountainous regions. Aircraft accidents can occur in these areas mm. where the terrain makes search and rescue operations very difficult. Yeah. Examples include the Himalayan region and other mountainous areas with challenging weather conditions. And we've had some of those for like being in the Air Force. We've had a couple of times where I've been stationed where the jets were doing training, you know, practicing mm. maneuvers. Mm -hmm. There was some sort of mechanical failure. And one time the pilot ejected, but he didn't make it. The other time they couldn't find the pilot, so they assumed that the pilot didn't eject. Oh, boy. But they found all the all the damage. So, but yeah. they have tracking now on those pilot ejectors. Like they can track they people now. Unless your airplane is stealth, because we just lost a stealth airplane not so long ago, <laughs> where it's like I'm missing. Uh, where are you? We can't find you. We <laughs> can't find you. Secret. That's the point. The no. <laughs> You're really good at your job. You're really good at your job. Okay. All right. The next one, conflict zones. Yeah. Uh, regions experiencing armed conflict or political instability can pose significant risk to aviation. Yes. Aircraft may be shot down, targeted, or face challenges due to airspace restrictions. Let me tell you one of the most scariest things I have ever experienced is something called a combat landing. Okay. Oh. And that's serious. when, let's say you're flying into a combat zone, for right. instance, when I was getting deployed and, you know, of my multiple flights that I got there, when I was finally getting to my destination, 
the planes made did a maneuver called a, a combat landing. Right. What's that about? And it's basically movements that the plane would make that if a surface-to-air missile was shot at it, it would miss it. it how the hell do you, what, what is it like? It's like the equivalent of sticking your toe in a pool. Like they just like, testing yeah, testing the well, waters and just throwing you just, out. Like how do they, how do you get they out? They just rotate. I don't know. They just rotate back and forth. So if a surface to air missile was going to be shot at it, they yeah. would likely miss it because they can't, they can align like their, their targeting system from the surface to air missile missile right. onto the plane because it's maneuvering. Oh my god! So it, it's called a combat landing, and that is one of the most scariest things I've ever had. How ever experienced? That must be like the ultimate roller coaster ride. Your stomach must be like <laughs> in your throat because I can you only know, imagine what that feels like. <laughs> I was just always wrenched down as tight as I could. Right. And I just kept my eyes closed, and I was just praying. <laughs> That's all you could do. That's, That's all, all you can do. do. My God. Okay. Well, so. There, I also collected five of the most mysterious incidents involving airplanes. Your story tonight actually ranked as number one, which I completely avoided. Okay. So we're going to start the the list off with two. Number two, (laughs) (laughs) Flying Tiger Line Flight 739 back in 1962. The military charter flight disappeared over the Pacific Ocean. Despite search efforts, no wreckage or bodies were ever found, Mm. leaving the cause of the disappearance unsolved. So like Mm. 60 years ago. I mean, we still don't know. And we'll never know. No. The ocean. The ocean. It it doesn't give up. It's dead. Yeah. You know. Number three. Egypt Air Flight 990 back in 1999. The crash of Egypt Air Flight 990 raised controversy as investigators concluded that the co-pilot intentionally caused the crash, but the motive remains unclear and disputed. It could be a little related to today's story, but I'm, oh, we're not going to talk about theories, but I'm just going to tease that a little bit. There's a little breadcrumb. Breadcrumb. A little nuggy. A little nuggy. A little nuggy. A little pen. Like, Num- I'm flying and Nuggie's my co-pilot. You should have put Nuggie in there for ne- for part two. Put Nuggie in there. <laughs> Scooshy and Nuggie. Oh, fuck. Your plane's going down. <laughs> okay, number four, Pan Am Flight 914 in 1955. I remember this. There is a documentary on this. It's really freaky. Mm-hmm. So this was a famous UFO-related incident. This commercial flight allegedly disappeared for several hours, and upon reappearing, the crew and passengers claimed to have experienced a time lapse. <sighs> there was a Stephen King movie called The Langoliers that was mm-hmm. loosely held on this flight. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen it? Where like these no. little, these little furry little like troll monsters are eating up time. I mean, no. it, it was a movie back in the eighties. It just reminds so it me silly. of. It just reminds me of the original Star Trek series, the episode, right. "The Trouble with Tribbles," the little furry things that got all over the place. <gasps> oh, but what did they do? What was their? What was their? I don't, I don't remember. It's like a gremlin <laughs> situation. Yeah, kind of, and they just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. Oh, the episode was called "The Trouble with Tribbles," and I remember that because we then had a dog that we called right. Tribble. That's a cute name. That's a cute name. Yeah. Uh, and the last one, Star Ariel and Star Tiger Disappearances in 1948. Two British South American Air Airways plane, planes, Star Ariel and Star Tiger, disappeared over the Bermuda Triangle within a year of each other, contributing to the mysteriousness of the region. Mm-hmm. Now... One notable mention, Amelia Earhart, disappearance, 1937. Amelia Earhart's attempt to circumnavigate the globe ending in her disappearance over the Central Pacific and her Mm -hmm. whereabouts still today remain unknown, although people have been, like, producing pictures of her. Hey, look at her. She's over here with this tribe. She's fine. Yeah. I don't know. I think I they know. did land, maybe crash landed somewhere, but there was no means of communicating. It was the 30s. Like, they yeah. had no way. I mean, they could have telegram, I guess, but mm. I don't know. I think that she did actually land, but that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, she was very brave to do what she did. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that's my little intro, but I hope that <laughs> set you up a little bit for your story. So going back to your list, number one, we're going to mm-hmm. go way deep into it. Okay. 
Are you ready? I am ready. There was something else that was coming to, say, it'll come to me. This is your captain speaking. <laughs> <laughs> We're about We're to take gonna... off. This is a crime <laughs> chat flight. We're destined <laughs> to unknown. <laughs> Please make sure you keep your hands and arms in. Yes. <laughs> as the beverage cart will be coming down the aisle. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on March 8th, 2014, Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 disappeared off of radar as it was mid-flight from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, en route to Beijing, China. There were 239 souls on board. How does a major airline just disappear? There was so much that just didn't add up, and we're going to kind of get into all the meat and potatoes of it. Was it hijacked? Mm. Was it a mechanical failure? Was it a meteor? So many theories, so many twists and turns about what happened to MH370. This was nearly 10 years ago. So coming up in March is going to be 10 years. Feels longer. It it does. It does Mm. feel like it was a lot longer ago. I'm sure not to the families, but like it does like 10 years. I anticipate that we're actually going to probably see something on the 10 year anniversary. Mm. Why don't we still know what happened? Right. Yeah. Right. So as I mentioned, this is going to be a two-parter. There's going to be... Some of the details that I'm going to go over today, we're going to talk about some of the families who lost their loved ones and details of the incident, what is known. And then in the next episode, we'll talk about the theories. We'll get into the nitty gritty. Okay. So MH370 was scheduled as a red-eye flight from Kuala Lumpur. It would fly through the night and it was due to arrive in Beijing around dawn. Just some real quick facts about this type of plane. MH370 was a Boeing 777-200ER model. The Boeing 777 is commonly referred to as a 777. It's American-made, developed and manufactured by Boeing Commercial Airplanes. It is the world's largest twin jet and the most built wide-body airliner. It was made originally to bridge the gap and framework between the 767 and the 747, and then also replaced the aging DC-10 and L-1011 tri-jets. Whatever that is. I have no idea what that means, but I'm going with it. (laughs) Go ahead. The prototype was rolled out in April of 1994 mm-hmm. and first flew in June of that year. The 777 entered service with a launch operator, United Airlines, in June of 1995. Longer range variants were launched then in 2000, which were first, which were then delivered in 2004. So I think, I don't think they're still ma- making the 777 other than right. maybe upgrades and that kind of thing. Now, as for flight MH370, everything appeared to be routine. There were 227 passengers, and there were 12 crew members. A majority of the passengers' nationality were Chinese. I mean, they were flying to Beijing. Mm-hmm. They had 153, followed by Malaysians, obviously leaving from Malaysia. There was 50. There were three Americans on board. And then the other nationalities included Australian, Canadian, French, Indian, Indonesian, Iranian, Netherlandian, East. <laughs> New Zealanders, Russians, mm-hmm. Taiwanese, and Ukrainians. Okay. Before I get into what happened, I want to mention a few family members who kind of shared their story with some of the research that I've done. I watched the Netflix series before. I watched it mm-hmm. over again, mm-hmm. validated some of the information. I've kind of pulled and compiled a lot of information together, but I'm going to talk about three family members, and these are their stories. Okay. Number one, one of the crew members was Hasreen Othman. His wife, Intan Othman, also worked for Malaysian Airlines. They had one daughter, and at the time, Intan was pregnant, so she wasn't working. It's like she Mm -hmm. wasn't flying. Kuala Lumpur to Beijing was a daily flight, and Hasreen worked that flight many times. The last time Intan saw her husband, she remembered Hasreen that he was packing his fluffy jacket because it was still winter in Beijing. Right. Hazring called his wife right before the plane took off, and she remembered the last thing he told her was, I love you. Oh. On the morning of the news, Intan said everything was normal. It was routine. And it was normal for them to, like, send text text messages when if either one of them were working to say, hey, I'm here, we made it, or mm-hmm. call. She did wake up early that morning and hadn't seen a text yet, but she was like, yeah, I, I'm sure he'll, he'll get to it. So she went back to sleep. She never got a text message, and she never got a phone call. Oh, boy. When Intan found out about what happened, all she remembered was crying and basically thinking the unimaginable had happened to her. Mm. So the second one I want to talk about, one of the passengers, his name was Paul Weeks. 
He's married to a lady named Danica. They had two young sons and they lived in Australia. Paul was getting ready to start a new job in China and he would work basically 28 days in China and then come home to Australia for 14 days. It's not a bad gig. It's a pretty good, pretty uh-huh. good thing. Before Paul left, he asked his wife, Danica, are you sure you want me to go? She said, yes, of course. And then at the airport, they all kind of went, the whole family went. And when Paul's plane was called to the boarding area, she said it was emotional. There were a lot of tears, a lot. The kids, of course, two young boys, you know, daddy's going. Of course, there were tears. The boys blew kisses. Paul said, I love you. He walked through the door and his family would never see him again. On that morning, Paul sent Danica an email from the airport that was titled, Miss You Already. He ended his email with, you and the boys are my world. As soon as I land in Beijing, March 8th, I'll give you a call. Danica was in the kitchen that morning and got a call. It was a lady. She was calling to ask for Paul. And she said, well, I'm I'm sorry. He's on a plane. Who are you and what can I do for you? Right. She said she was a reporter from the New Zealand Herald. She asked, what do you want with my husband? And the reporter said, haven't you heard? Danica replied, heard what? The reporter told Danica there had been an incident with the plane. She said that she remembered dropping the phone and went outside screaming. Oh, my God. That's a horrible way of finding out. Yes, it absolutely is. Horrible. Oh. So another person I'm going to talk about, his name is Jusane Watrilos. French citizen Jusane Watrilos. I'm going to butcher his name. And I apologize. Uh, No parlez-vous français. (laughs) (laughs) He was a French citizen living in Beijing, but he was away on business. So he was actually flying back into Beijing. And his family, his wife and his two children, were also flying into Beijing. But his kids went to school in Malaysia. And they were on a holiday. They were on holiday break. Mm -hmm. So basically, dad was coming back to Beijing from a business trip. You know, wife and kids are going to come up and have some time off together. Mm The day before the flight, Jusane spoke with his wife and she assured him, we're all good, everything's planned. On the day of the flight, he got a message from his daughter saying that they were at the airport, getting ready to go from Kuala Lumpur. And it said, quote, I'm happy because I'm going to see my daddy again, end quote. Jusane arrived at the Beijing airport around 4 p.m. on March 8th. When he got off the plane, there was a hostess waiting for him. And she said, sir, follow us. He had no idea what was going on, and when they told him the plane his wife and his children were on had disappeared, at that moment, he said the time just absolutely stopped for him. How could this happen? Like, is this a nightmare? Like, wake me up. He asked her, are you sure? And then they answered, no, we're not sure of anything. Oh, my God. Yeah. So just reading that, I got chills. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, the incident. At 12.42 a.m. March 8, 2014, MH370 took off and had a flight time of 5 hours and 34 minutes. It was a clear night. Everything seemed to be calm. It was routine. The plane climbed to cruising altitude and headed toward the South China Sea. At 1.01 a.m., the captain contacted Lumpur Radar saying, Malaysia 370 maintaining level 350. Basically what this means is we've reached our cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. And they did confirm that again with radar at 1.08 a.m. This is where things start to get a little strange. The plane was about to leave Malaysian airspace and would be handed over to the air traffic controllers in Vietnam. Malaysian air traffic control contacted MH370 and said, Contact Ho Chao Ming 120.9. Good night. Signing off, essentially. Air traffic control tower from Malaysia was signing off to the plane. Okay. Saying, Contact Hao Cho Ming, which is the name of the air traffic control of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Good night. Good luck. Farewell. Is that normal? Yes. Okay. okay. That is normal. Okay. So once, like when you're changing airspaces, you have to go from one air traffic control to another air traffic control. Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody yeah. has to be monitoring, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have, a, if, as a pilot, you would need a point of contact, at least one point of contact to be able to have a mayday or if there's some sort of emergency or something right. like that. Right. The captain, Zahari Ahmad Shah, he responded, Good night, Malaysian 370, signing off. Mm-hmm. Saying farewell, Malaysia. Okay. This was around 1.20 a.m. And they were ex- expected to make contact with the Vietnamese air traffic control once they reached the end of Malaysian airspace. Mm-hmm. But no contact was ever made. Now, within 90 seconds of the captain's response to Malaysia saying, Good night, farewell, mm-hmm. MH370 went dark on radar. It vanished. Oh, my God. That's freaking me out. It's freaking me out. Yeah. Okay. It literally just disappeared. 
Okay. Yeah. This is where the mystery uh, begins. Okay. Crisis director for Malaysian Airlines, uh, then, his name is Fuwadu Sharjui. Okay, I'm going to purchase his name, Joe. <laughs> Fuwad Sharuji. Okay. He was contacted about an hour later after it went missing, 2.20 a.m., and he was told that the flight disappeared from the system. And this was very unusual. Yeah. Doesn't happen. He responded immediately and went to the emergency center, and he said he was numb, he was nervous. Right away, they contacted... Hong Kong, Vietnam, Taiwan, and would ask them all to try and communicate with MH370. Mm -hmm. All attempts were unsuccessful. They're scrambling. Things are just going crazy. Mm -hmm. Not knowing what to do. From about 4 to about 6.30 in the morning, they were calling all the airports they could think of, all air traffic control, anybody who would have any hopes at any point of knowing or identifying if MH370 had landed. Working as diligently as possible, it had been five hours since anyone had heard from or saw MH370 on radar. Something was terribly wrong, and by 6.30 in the morning, local time, the flight should have landed, mm -hmm. and it made international news. They were getting calls from CNN, Fox, BBC, just everywhere. Yeah. Now, 7.30 a.m., six hours since last contact, Malaysian Airlines issued a statement. One hour after the scheduled arrive time, saying that communications were lost. Neither the crew nor the aircraft's communication system relayed a distress signal, indications bad weather, no technical problems, before it just completely vanished off a of radar. Mm. Then head of civil aviation in Malaysia, his name was Azharuddin Abdul Rahman, and said that search and rescue efforts were underway. Standard procedures mm -hmm. indicated that they were going to go to the last location where the aircraft was seen on radar mm -hmm. and kind of go out from there. The emergency center actually got a call saying someone who was working on an oil rig in this part of the South China Sea saw an explosion and it probably crashed in the ocean. Keep that in mind. Uh-huh. Yeah. MH370 had seven hours worth of fuel on board. The flight was only going to be about five and a half hours, so they had extra just in case emergency having to reroute or whatever. And this meant, with seven hours of fuel, by 8.30 a.m. local time, it would have run out of gas. As you can imagine, this disappearance went viral also on social media and around the world. Do you remember that? I do. Do you remember I do. hearing about it? Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some started to claim it was hijacked. Some said it crashed into the jungles of Java. I didn't know what Java was. <laughs> it's an island of Indonesia, and it's actually, it's interesting, it's the world's most populous island and it's home to 56 percent of the indonesian population so the all of indonesia 56 percent of the population live on this island 151.6 million people what on an on island? island how big is this yes. island great question is this... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think when i think when i think island i'm thinking it, it's got to be the size of like manhattan <laughs> <laughs> To be determined. To be determined. <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> so not knowing what the truth was, Emergency Center had to look into all possible theories. They were getting all kinds of tips. Social media was flying everywhere. Mm. It, they spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened. And, of course, the families at this point want to know what happened to their loved ones. And they just don't have the answers. So now Vietnamese Air Force at this time had spotted some large oil slicks in the area of southern Vietnam in the South China Sea. Mm. And each of those slicks were about six miles wide. Wow. And also, a Cathay Pacific pilot reported seeing a large solid debris in the ocean during a flight from Hong Kong to Kuala Lumpur. The captain of another Malaysian Airlines pilot from MH88 was en route to Tokyo. They were mm -hmm. asked to try and make contact with MH370 on their emergency frequency. They were about 30 minutes ahead of where MH370 was. Okay. So the pilot tried. He said there was a lot of interference. So, like, they answered. There was interference. There was static. But he heard mumbling on the other end. Oh, okay. Calls to the flight's cockpit at 2.39 and 7.13 a.m. when unanswered. But they were acknowledged by the aircraft satellite data unit that they had received the call, but it just went, went unanswered. Mm. See, so I, yeah, that sounds like a hijacking. It sounds that way, but I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. You're going to get into it. Okay. Yeah. 
So family and friends of those who were, who were at the airport, like awaiting arrival of their loved ones, mm. they were all sent to this hotel, basically to kind of get them away from the airport. The airport kind of still had business to do, but like, let's get you all gathered together, keep you all together, so whenever we have information, we can give it to you all together. This was also bombarded with news outlets. In a press conference, they announced that they were working with authorities who have activated a search and rescue team to locate the aircraft, and their team was currently in the process of contacting all the next to kin of all the passengers and crew. Jassane Wittrous, the French citizen who mm-hmm. lived in Beijing, yeah, he was one of the very last family members to arrive at the hotel. If you remember, he flew in later. Mm-hmm. like He got there about 4 p.m., so he was like one of the last ones to get to the hotel. He said everybody was taking pictures, re- reaching out with microphones. Like, they were being mobbed by journalists, and it was just, like, a crazy, like, chaotic yeah. scene. His friends had to push the people out of the way so Jasane could actually get into, like, the conference room area where everybody was gathered, family members and loved ones. As soon as he walked in, he's like, people were sobbing, crying. And he's like, and I don't know if you've ever seen this video, they're wailing. I mean, just absolutely distraught. It's very emotional. Yeah. And Jasane was asked to come in. He was asked to sit down by one of the Malaysian Airlines representatives. So Jasane was like, what are we doing? And they answered, we're waiting. He said, I can't stay here. They asked one of his friends to take him home. He's like, I'll, if this is the case, I'll watch it on the news. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to stay in this. And plus, he was a French citizen. Uh, obviously, like the universal language is English. Mm-hmm. But especially in airlines. If they may primary, if, you know, first speak their their native language, but they always follow up. I don't know, you know, flying internationally, you always hear it in English as well. Mm-hmm. But he was French, didn't speak Chinese. Oh yeah. He had no way to communicate with yeah. others that were in the room. He's like, just take me home. Yeah. The longer the time went on, the more frustrated the family and friends of the lost loved ones got. Mm. Wolf Blitzer. He reported that they heard some of the families were trying to contact their loved ones on board. I would be doing the same thing. Absolutely. Like, you can't get a hold of them. My mom always answers my phone. Like, she always answers my call. Like I would be redialing then, every minute. Mm-hmm. I, I would just, yeah. Yeah. You would think if it was crashed, the phone going right to voicemail, like if a phone's turned off, you would think, even if it's mid-flight, you would, you know, please turn off your cell phones. Right. You can't make a connection. Right. None of the calls that were attempted to reach the passengers who were on the plane went to voicemail. They continued to ring and ring and ring. Oh, that's spooky. That's freaky. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And then, crazy, one of the family members, she was a daughter, her father was on the flight, she got an incoming call from Papa, and she freaked out. She's like, what do I do? And she was like, answer it. Yeah. Answer it. By the time she went to answer it, it stopped ringing. Holy crap. I think that was the only one... And I could be wrong, but I think that was the only one that I saw, at least, that had a call from the plane to them. Right. From someone yeah. on the plane from to them. That's right. freaky. That is just freaky. Mm-hmm. Well, many of the families continued to try to contact their loved ones, and it just rang and rang and rang. Mm-hmm. Being the fact that they was ringing, it meant something. There was some sort of connection that was being made. So they go to the, the government and are like, do something. Yeah. Trace the call. Yeah. What we're calling them, these are their numbers. The Chinese government said they didn't have the technology to trace the calls. Bull. I call bullshit. Yes. <laughs> yes. No. Bullshit. Fuck. You didn't want to. You didn't run, want to release the fact that you had that capability to the general public. Right. I don't know. It was just bullshit. Mm. They could have done. Yes. It. And also, when when you have an incoming call, isn't there a tower? That is like receiving that data, sending it to mm-hmm. your phone, like so. Mm-hmm. So China, it, yeah. that would that tower would be it within, I guess, the border of China. China is that what you're saying? And they didn't want to release that information. I'm not too sure. So uh-huh. where the plane disappeared was in the southern China Sea, where it went off radar. Okay, leaving the peninsula. Peninsula. Pen- I can't say peninsula. Peninsula. <laughs> Spit it out. <laughs> Leaving the Malaysian Peninsula, okay, and going over to Vietnam, where Vietnam kind of okay comes together. So in between those two peninsulas, right, is where they went off radar. So there's no like in China, of course, is is north of Vietnam, right? But they were going flying over Vietnam in order to get to Beijing. So they had to go through obviously Vietnamese airspace, okay, which is why they had to contact Vietnamese air traffic control to say we're we're coming into your airspace essentially. Non-hostile. Yeah. Don't shoot us down. <laughs> Something shady is going on. Something shady is going on. I don't know. 
Okay. Mm. 24 hours go by since last contact. All hands are on deck from many of the countries in conducting the search. If it had landed at an airport by now, they would have known it. It definitely did not have enough fuel to still be in the air 24 Mm -hmm. hours after last contact. And the oil that was spotted in the ocean, a sample of it was taken and tested. They did expect for it to be jet fuel, but it turned out it was oil from a ship. Oh. So it wasn't from the plane. The head of civil aviation, Ramon, he said they still had nothing 24 hours later, and things just were not going as expected. There was such a tremendous interest from around the world. To include a pretty notable print online and television journalist, his name is Jeff Wise. He specializes in aviation adventure psychology. He made a a number of appearances on Fox, CNN, Mm. and he actually lives in New York City. He was also seen in the Netflix series and spent countless hours investigating what could have happened to the airplane. Wise first started with the communications. Why were the communications lost? What happened? A major commercial airliner like MH370 is in communication in multiple ways with the outside world. Mm -hmm. All of them went dark at the exact same time. Yeah. It's like somebody turned a switch. Yeah. The most obvious answer would have been to like a catastrophic failure. Did it blow up? Did it crash into the ocean? Did it suffer a fire so intense that all the equipment was destroyed simultaneously and didn't have a chance to call for mayday? Mm. The plane's debris at this point was still not found. Where the disruption in the communication had occurred, where it disappeared, if it was not a catastrophic failure, what else could it be? The only other possibility was that someone on board the plane Mm. deliberately turned off the electronic equipment. If that's the case, who done it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Two days after last contact, we're at 48 hours later, Malaysian Airlines issued a statement saying that MH370 was hundreds of miles off course and flying in the wrong direction when it was last tracked. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yeah. It's all, it, now it's coming back to me. Okay. It's coming it's back to me now. <laughs> it's all coming back to me. Which they, so did, pa- they didn't find that out till, like you said, two days well, later. Two days? No. How, like. They, no. They not, didn't release that they found out uh, until two days later. Mm. Aha. Yeah. It apparently turned in the opposite direction and was headed back towards the Malacca Strait over the Malaysian Peninsula. It may have very well been flying for an hour before disappearing off of military radar, which last made contact at 2.22 a.m. So basically, the military radar, it doesn't require signals to be sent from the plane. Mm -hmm. However, the Malaysian military couldn't say, uh, confirm 100% that it was in fact MH370 because on their radar system, they can only see that something there. They can't tell what kind of aircraft it is. They can't tell the altitude, the airspeed. They just know that something is there. So 1.20 a.m. civilian radar goes dark. 2.20 a.m. it goes dark off of the military radar. And essentially, I'll kind of get to that a little bit. But countries were actually reluctant to release this information of what their military radar capabilities are because of the sensitivity of it and not wanting the people in the public to know. Vietnam's deputy minister of transport, Pham Q Tu, sorry, butchered it. Mm -hmm. He stated that Vietnam had noticed MH370 turning back towards the west and that its operators had twice informed Malaysian authorities on the same day, March 8th. Oh. And that morning. Okay. Twice, Vietnam contacted Malaysia and said, your plane's not in our airspace. It's not going where it's supposed to go. It's going back your way. (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay. Now, what it looks like is MH370 disappeared from civilian radar Mm -hmm. at 120, made a near U-turn to go back over the Malaysian Peninsula, and it was picked up by military radar. It flew to the edge of military radar capability, which is where it dropped off at 2.22 a.m., and then vanished again. If that was the case, what was the pilot, or whoever was flying the plane, trying to do? Why bank, like, make a complete U-turn? Yeah. Like, pulling up the emergency brake and flipping a bitch. (laughs) Something, something, something was happening. Something was... Yes. And it wasn't catastrophic. A doubt. Catastrophic at first. It was a a U turn. Like, why did mm-hmm. they make a U turn? It was an explosion. Yeah, that's a yep. shade. Okay. All right. I'm into it. Okay. Mm. All right. So CNN, BBC, other major news outlets aired the story continuously on a loop. And Jacin Wateros, the French citizen, all he could do was watch. Mm. 
He decided at this point, two days later, I need to call my son. He's a student in France, and I need to tell him. Before he could say anything, his son answered the phone and said, tell me they weren't on that plane. Oh my God, you're and breaking he my said, heart. yes. He just broke my heart. And Jusane said he, he heard his son scream. You broke my heart. Oh my I'm God. Sorry. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, this poor man. This poor man. He comes up later. Oh. And I want to, I'm so interested to hear what you have to say. About oh, okay. It. okay. Oh, okay. March 11th, three days since last contact, 40 ships and 39 aircraft who were doing the search had failed to find any sign of MH370, searching simultaneously both in the South China Sea and then in the Andaman Sea to the west, which which was on the other side of the Malaysian Peninsula. After identifying the fact that they had made that U-turn, they were searching both the sea between Malaysia and Vietnam and the sea to the west of Malaysia Peninsula, which is the Andaman Sea. Okay. In a press conference, Ramon, he was the civil aviator, the boss or whatever, he said, quote, as far as we're concerned, we are equally puzzled as well, end quote, referring to the state of confusion as to which area they should be searching. You know, if you have 100 assets and you have two different areas to search, right? you have 50 assets in one area, 50 assets in another area, are you spread too thin? Like, if we don't know where they are, somebody from the oil rig said there was an explosion. They saw one in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. So they kind of they had to follow up on that. Like, yeah. was there an explosion? And then knowing the military radar, seeing that the plane had, in fact, done the U-turn, was it in the Andaman Sea? So they mm-hmm. had different areas that they were searching. So families like Intan Othman, her husband was the one that was the crew member, the mm-hmm. flight attendant on board. She said they were absolutely confused. One day they said one thing. The next day it was something else. And they just made it h- hard to find out, like, who to believe or what to believe. And then all of the suspicions started to rise. Was the Malaysian government withholding information? The biggest part about this was why the Malaysian government held onto the information for two days mm-hmm. when it changed direction. They would have been able to see it in real time. Why not release that? Was that part of their, like, wanting to not release the fact that they did see it? Like, why right. wouldn't they say that? Why would you spend so many resources in the South China Sea if you know it's not there? It's cover up. Meanwhile... In the mm. conference room of the hotel, oh, family boy. members started to throw water bottles at government officials. They were yelling. They were screaming. Like, frustration was just, like, absolutely building. It was mm-hmm. busting at the seams. And they demanded answers. It created so much confusion with the family members. And not knowing, I mean, that's the freaking worst part. Yeah. Not knowing what happened to them. And how can yeah. you not know what happened to them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, March 12th. Four days since last contact. The search was both unbelievable and unprecedented in the times, like in 2014, like not, no other search had ever been done like this. It was the fourth day and they didn't have a single sign of a massive airliner. Mm-hmm. It just gets stranger and stranger yeah. and weirder and weirder. So Jeff Wise, the mm-hmm. journalist, he continued to look into the technical aspects of the disappearance, uh, the communication system, like why did it fail? And was running information on his blog. He was getting a lot of comments. And a lot of them were started going back and forth and having conversations. And then he got a comment from somebody named Airland Seaman. And from this, they kind of pulled a parallel investigation. And a group of people just decided to kind of pull out from that and create their own investigation. Mm -hmm. This Airland Seaman had such technical details that Jeff Weiss clearly felt they knew that he knew what he was talking about. And the group of people that kind of collaborated together. They are all like different types of technical experts. Yeah. Airline Seaman was later identified as Mike Exner, an aviation expert who spent his entire career around engineering and science. Okay. He chose to start communicating on Wise's blog to see if he they could all kind of come up with some sort of theories. Pilots, engineers, scientists, lawyers, all people who would be familiar with how the 777 flies and how the different systems work. They all came together and formed a tight-knit team called the Independent Group. From their findings and conversations, the spotlight turned more and more onto the pilots. Oh, boy. Oh. Yeah. Anyone with access to the internet could also go to a database called TomNod, basically use their platform, view these high-resolution images where MH370 went down or was last seen. Anybody could log in, and they were actually asking for help, like, Yeah. Help us search this area. It was such a vast area. And look at these satellite images. One of these so-called Tom Nodders, her name is Cindy Hendry. 
And she was watching the news, watching the suffering and just the anguish from these family members. And it just tugged at her heartstrings. And she's like, I have to help. Like, I have to do something. She had a hobby of photography, which meant that she kind of had an eye for detail. Mm -hmm. And she thought that she could help. Now, for the areas that they were searching, they were given an area. Like, they didn't choose a specific area. The platform of Tomna just kind of said, okay, this is the area that you're going to be looking at these images. And from when she was looking at where it first disappeared from civilian radar in the South China Sea, it was just Black Sea image after Black Sea image after Black Mm -hmm. Sea image, just the same thing over and over. Finally, she saw something white. She pulled the schematics off the internet for a Boeing uh, Boeing 777 and said that she was able to identify this piece as the nose cone. When she started to continue to look, she started seeing more pieces. Oh, my God. Something that looked like the fuselage and then something that looked like part of the tail. And Hendry said that she just cried because she's like, she knew that this was part of the plane, Mm -hmm. you know, and she knew that somebody had died there and and admit they were no longer alive. Yeah. And that's not what the family members were wanting. Yeah. But one week now since last contact, so March 15th, the Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razik went to Beijing and did a press conference and he said, quote, Today, based on satellite communication, we can confirm that MH370 did indeed turn back over the peninsular Malaysia before turning around northwest. We're ending our operations in the South China Sea and reassessing the redeployment of our assets. End quote. For the Tom Nodder, Cindy, she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. I found debris in the South China Sea. You can't stop. Yeah. She decided she wasn't going to sit around and not let that be known. She had already contacted Tom Nod and said, the debris exists. But she never got confirmation back from the platform where she tagged the debris in those images. Mm-hmm. So it was like nothing ever happened. So she went onto social media. She, she had screenshots, thankfully, of the things that she had, t- had flagged. Mm-hmm. She tweeted, she posted to Facebook, she emailed, and she did everything that she absolutely could to get the attention that the fact that there was debris in the South China Sea. However, the next thing that she heard was even more confusing. The Malaysian Prime Minister said, Based on this new data, we have determined that the plane's last communication with the satellite was in one of two possible corridors. And I gotta, I, I'll explain that. Yeah. <laughs> so after the plane turned around, it did its U-turn, mm-hmm. but flew over the Malaysian Peninsula. Right. When it left military radar, it continued on. Okay. It turns out that a satellite communication system called Inmarsat had equipment aboard that airplane, and the plane was communicating with the satellite. And this last ping was in the center of the Indian Ocean. The coverage area of the the Inmarsat pings was so vast that it could have been hundreds of thousands of square miles. Okay. I'll I'll kind of explain it. It seems kind of confusing, but the only way that a plane flying over a body of water can communicate... Right. there's, There's no towers, right? So they have to communicate via satellite. Okay. So they have to transmit to a satellite. Inmarsat provides a satellite communications for aircraft, all commercial aircraft, that go beyond the range of ground radar systems. A gentleman named Mark Dickinson from Inmarsat, he said, what Inmarsat found were seven pings. Every hour, the Inmarsat system was checking in on the satellite terminal on the aircraft, and the aircraft was responding. So basically, Inmarsat pings and says, hey, are you there? The satellite terminal on the aircraft comes back and says, yes, I'm here. So it was confirming that right. for seven hours. So it or was six, in the six air. Six hours. That they, that were, they in were in the, the air. air. After it okay. lost contact from military radar, so 2.20 in the morning, mm-hmm. it leaves any type of radar capability. The Inmarsat system saying, are you there? The plane is saying, yes, I'm here. These pings continued, like I mentioned, once an hour, about six hours, until the last ping at 8.19 a.m. The aircraft did not respond to the status request from Inmarsat at 9.15. So, 8.19 to 9.15. Do you think it went down between that time, or do you think, is it possible to get a ping from a a plane that landed? I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, does it have to be, like, this this company, they, so they're... So, I think it's also built in the system. So, I think it's built into the computer satellite system that says... We've identified that you're in the air. Got it. We'll start making sure and pinging you. Like, okay. Like, I think it, I, I could be wrong. But, Imis- but I, I kind of. But Imistat, like, they specialize in going a little bit further than what yes. normal satellites do. Because we know. So at that point, we know it's around the, in the water somewhere. Yes. But the Indian Sea? The Indian Ocean. Yeah. Indian Ocean? Yeah. Fuck. Ah. 
the people who looked into at MRSAT, they were looking into it. They were shocked that it even pinged because it wasn't on radar. Like, it had mm. disappeared. Like, yeah. what What the heck? Mm-hmm. So they were not still expecting the aircraft to be flying. The drawback, there's nothing in the data that MRSAT had that said where MH370 could be. Like, a GPS. It okay. wasn't a GPS. It was just basically saying, poke, poke, are you alive? Okay. Yep, I'm alive. But I'm not telling, you know, but... Yeah. You don't have my location. Right, right. Okay. They only knew how far the aircraft would have been from a satellite for each ping. So this meant they had to analyze the data and identify the distance between the satellite and the ping from, you know, the first ping to the second ping to third ping to kind of help. So they had to sit down and analyze all of that data. Mm -hmm. At this point, they didn't know if it was flying north or flying south. And once it's in the Indian Ocean, kind of turns back around, it does its U-turn. Is it going to go to the north or is it going to go to the south? They had this huge, vast of area which they had to analyze and try to figure it out. If it went south, it would have ended up in the South Indian Ocean, Mm -hmm. middle of nowhere, no land in sight. Okay. If it went north, it would have gone to Central Asia. Okay. Now, the most optimistic option at this point was that it went north, landed in Central Asia. It would have been around Kazakhstan. Right. On the other hand, if it went south, it would have crashed. It would have ran out of fuel. It would have been in a remote area of the Indian Ocean. And there's no way that anybody would have survived. Now, while Imarsat was working on analyzing the information, the Malaysian government is now forced to acknowledge that this was a deliberate act. Like, there's no way this was an accident. Somebody had to have physically turned the plane. It had to have been done intentionally. Like, there's no way the plane would have done it itself. It couldn't have been done by accident. Somebody caused that plane to turn around. Somebody caused that plane to lose its communications. I agree. Yeah. Now, as suspicions grew, the Malaysian prime minister did confirm that the plan, that it was deliberately taken off course, Mm. and it was now a a criminal investigation. One of the two pilots was considered infinitely more of a culprit than the other. Okay. The co-pilot was just approved to fly this Boeing 777. It was its very first flight as as a first officer for Malaysian Airlines on this type of aircraft. It was quite new. The other one... Captain Zahari Ahmad Shah was the focus, but we're going to get into him a little bit more later. Oh, okay. Still no sign of the plane. Was it north? Did it go south? Inmarsat had to essentially reverse engineer their system to crack the code to find out what would be expected if the aircraft was moving north or if it was moving south, and then they found it. They had to decipher what they actually could release to the Malaysian government <sighs> before they, they could give them the information. But March 24, 16 days after last contact, Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razik appeared before the media, 10 p.m. local time, and gave a statement that Flight 370, which he announced he was briefed by the Air Accidents Investigations Branch in the UK and by Imarsat, and they concluded that MH370's last position before it disappeared was the Southern Corridor. The remote location, no landing sites possible, and concluding, and he said this, the flight had ended in the Southern Indian Ocean. Wow. Based on the MRSAT data. Mm. But there was no proof. Right, right. There was no physical evidence, only satellite information. And the Malaysian government told people that their loved ones were dead because of math. And never before in history did 239 people ever be declared dead based on mathematics alone. Yeah. Yeah. And so the families were like, prove it. There was no verification because they're like, oh, this is where it is. There's no possible way we can find it. Right. You know, close case. And the families felt that they were hiding information. The Malaysian government was hiding information. We're just trying to wrap it up and be done with it. The families of the majority of the passengers, Chinese, right, mm-hmm. nationality, they started to openly protest, which is not a thing that you do in China. Mm-hmm. They condemned the Malaysian government, and they told the Malaysian government that the Malaysian government, the Malaysian military, and Malaysia Airlines were all accountable for these quote-unquote unforgivable crimes. Riots ensued in Beijing, and as families of the Chinese passengers lost, they started to protest outside the Malaysian embassy, and they were holding signs and shouting things like, tell us the truth. Malaysia is a liar. Bring our families back. You Mm -hmm. are murderers. Wow. They simply refused to accept the fact that their loved ones were lost without the proof. Yeah. Oh, I could see hard. that. I mean, like, I could see that how emotional, like, show me, show me evidence that there's yes, something. Yes, of course. You want closure or something like that. I totally, I, yeah, Malaysia. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so search and rescue efforts then were moved from the, like, around the Malaysian Peninsula down to the southern Indian Ocean. Okay. 
This story is getting me very upset. I got my fan out. <laughs> You're like I'm getting I'm very upset right now because I'm like <laughs> I'm like what the fuck Malaysia. So search and rescue efforts then were moved from the Malaysian Peninsula area down to the southern Indian Ocean. Between March 18th and April 28th, there were 19 vessels, 345 sorties by military aircraft that searched 1.8 <gasps> million square miles. That's a big freaking area. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The final phase of the search was a bathymetric survey and sonar search of the seafloor, 1,100 miles southwest of Perth, Western Australia. Starting from March 30th, 2014, the search was coordinated by Joint Agency Coordination Center. It's an Australian government agency established specifically to manage the effort to locate and recover anything from Flight 370, and it primarily involved uh, Australian, Malaysian, Chinese governments. So that search is going. They're doing the, the sonar searching, trying to get anything that might have sunk to the ocean floor. Uh-huh. Four and a half months later, as the search is still continuing, July 7th, 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight MH17 took off from Amsterdam and was shot down by a surface-to-air <gasps> missile over Ukraine. It was confirmed that oh, the Russian military yeah. intelligence had commanded a Russian army unit to shoot the plane down. And the Ukrainian president called it an act of terrorism. Do you remember that at yes, all? Yes, yeah. I do. Oh, my God. Now, okay. Malaysian uh-huh. Airlines had not had a significant incident since the 90s. And now in a span of a few months, it lost two Boeing 777s. Uh-huh. And people started to think, okay, is this a coincidence? Is there a connection? Yeah. Is the loss of MH370 a potentially an act of war? MH17 had nearly 300 people on board. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it was actually considered a loss-wise was more than it was on MH370. But did the Russians actually cause both events? Hmm. The search of MH370 lasted until January 17th of 2017, so almost three years. It cost $155 million, where the underwater search accounted for 86% of that. In an October 2017 report by the Australian Transportation Safety Bureau, they concluded that the location where the aircraft went down had been narrowed to an area of 9,700 square miles, which is better than hundreds of thousands of square miles. But they used this by satellite images and what they call a debris drift analysis. So Uh based on waves, current, you know, how it was moved, wind, yeah, where would this likely float to? Now, several pieces of marine debris were found on the coast of Africa, on the Indian Ocean Islands off of the coast of Africa, the first of which was discovered July 29, 2015, on an island called Reunion. It's in the middle of the Indian Ocean, Uh and this was confirmed to have been pieces of flight MH370. The bulk of the aircraft has not been located, prompting many, many, many theories about its disappearance. Mm. And this is where we're going to end part one of the mysterious MH370 disappearance. Oh boy, yay! I didn't. I didn't even think about the Russian aspect. Like I, I totally missed that. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Is that a nuggy? Is that another nuggy? It's another nuggy. So next, <laughs> <laughs> love nuggy. I'm gonna put get nuggy. I'm gonna put a pilot's hat on him. Yes, yes. A little pilot's cap, and he's gonna fly us into next week. <laughs> <laughs> and get squishy and put him on the other side with like a red scarf, like he's oh, the, it's like a flight attendant, right? Yeah. <laughs> so is is squishy, is squishy the uh, attendant and yeah, he's the Nuggie. pilot serving. I'm no. thinking, you know, I'm thinking male pilot, female flight attendant, do a little nooky nooky. Is it? <laughs> wait, wait. Did we establish that squishy is it a boy or a girl? Well, I don't know. It can be anything it wants to be. That's true. They have, they still have this little romance. Okay. All right. All right. Well, this is good because now I got questions. I got a lot of questions. I I have questions. I'm going to write my questions down because I I need them answered because this is, I forgot how fucking, first of all, I forgot that there were two planes that went down, Mm -hmm. which is hella suspicious. And then forgot that I I forgot the whole Russian aspect to it. So we've got a couple theories kind of, you know, sprinkled. We've got an act of war, essentially, hijacking potentially, Russian involvement. We've got, Mm. I don't know, one of the pilots decided to do a mass murder suicide suicide mission for some reason. Somebody else on the plane went nuts, berserk, decided to take it over. 
what if, you know, the pilot passed out, hit one of the buttons, right? turned the plane around, and it just went until it ran out of fuel. And you, we're, are we going to cover that in the next one? We're going to talk about a lot of theories in the next one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. This is good. And I'll talk about some of the details and stuff in the next one too. Like, well, I'll mention some of the additional things about like the debris, where the debris was found and what the debris was. And then we'll talk about, yeah, some of the other theories. Well. Chatters, what do you think? Yeah. Give us your theories and maybe we'll mention them next week. Yes. Good. If you have any questions, definitely. I don't have any answers. Send it. Send it to Cat. She'll <laughs> she'll have she'll have the answers. <laughs> All right. Well, because we don't leave you hanging, chatters. For more information on this case, please check out After That Crime Chat, only available on Patreon. Yes, don't forget to follow us, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat, on all of our socials, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok. See what we got coming up. Well, we know what's coming up, but let's see what we got going on. Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. When you become a VIP chatter to our Patreon, you'll have access to bonus episodes, behind the scenes, bloopers, and free merch. And also check out some merch in the works. I got some ideas. Some really good ideas. Yeah. Well, be sure to check out the next episode. You don't want to miss part two of the mysterious MH370 disappearance. Nope, you don't want to miss it. So we'll see you here next time.